So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. All right, folks, it's been a long and really hard week, and it's, um, it's, it's been really difficult for me because uh, as far as black identity and, and safety and black skin goes, it's, it's been pretty awful. Um, I'm not even really sure where to begin on the shooting that happened in Charleston, other than to say it's one of the worst uh, hate crimes and one of the worst uh, human rights atrocities uh, that's happened in American history, certainly one of the worst in the last hundred years. Uh, but before we get into that, just want to let you know that Desmond is off this week, uh, and we've got a brilliant guest host that we were lucky enough to land in this seat. I've got Supriya Devedi with me. Sorry, Supriya, I just want to make sure that I get your name correctly. So is that it? Devedi, it rhymes with spaghetti. Supriya, thank you for uh, for coming on the show today and filling in Desmond's seat. No problem. Thank you for having me. So Supriya is a political commentator. She's a former radio host in Montreal, um, and we we've had like crosstown beef over some issues in Quebec, which we're going to get into just a little bit. She's also a consultant with Crestview Strategies. So hang on a second. Supriya, answer this question for me. Maybe we can actually get into this on this show. What the hell do you guys do? Yeah, I love that term because it's really a catch-all for we can do it all. Um, so we take care of all your public affairs needs from uh, everything from gov- government relations to strategic, political, and government council. Perfect. So you're just there to tell us what to think. Yeah, more or less. All <laughs> right. And what we've also done is invite Ishmael Darrow along. Darrow rhymes with sparrow. I like all the rhyming. Uh, my last name is Demise, rhymes with please. Uh, Ishmael, thanks so much for jumping in today. And um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm a, uh, a writer and I uh, do stuff online for the National Post. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, since I've got you here with me today, there's a couple of things I do want to get into, and they all have to do with intolerance and political rhetoric. So I do want to get into the Zero Tolerance for Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. I also want to talk about the new secular legislation, which has been introduced by the Quebec Liberal government. And given the tragedy that happened, well, sorry, I'm not going to say tragedy. Let's just call it for what it is. Given the act of terrorism that happened in Charleston, South Carolina, I want to talk about the way that when other groups people of color when they're attacked how is it that the media and our politicians respond so you guys ready for this hell yeah i'm spree devetti and i'm andre demise and you're listening to canadaland comments this episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's best online audiobook service. Supriya, have you heard of Audible? You know, I've heard of it because I listen to this show, um, but I don't actually think I've ever used it. Well, given that I'm always on the go, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. 
And an audiobook you might like is The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. Uh, James Baldwin was, in my opinion, one of the best essayists that America ever produced. And The Fire Next Time is a book about the civil rights movement and why black Americans are on the brink of a revolution. The book itself is narrated by Jesse L. Martin, who plays Detective Joe West on my favorite show, the Flash. You can read this book or any other one in Audible's 180,000 volume library for free with a 30-day membership. Just visit audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand to get started. Hey, you sold me. <laughs> okay, so let's just get right into the topic. Supriya, can you tell us a little bit about the Zero Tolerance for Barbaric Cultural Practices Act? Oh, it's so easy to say, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, this act is really just a catch-all, multi-provisional bill, which makes everything doubly illegal. And I say doubly illegal because it's already illegal within the criminal code, but things like female genital mutilation, forced marriages, honor killings, and the like. So it's it's really, I like to think of it as good PR for the conservative campaign and saying that they're doubly against this stuff. Um, but it is, in fact, it's it's a useless bill, in, in, in my opinion, because everything's already illegal. It actually received royal assent this week, and the liberals help push it over the mark, and they, in fact, voted for this bill. Ishmael, is there anything that you think uh, needs to be further explained about this act? I think the biggest one is that bundling these various practices up into a new bill and calling it not bad things we don't like, but tying it to culture and calling that barbaric, I think that's that's kind of novel about this. All right. So Ishmael, you've written about this act and you've had some commentary about uh, the way that the Tories are pursuing this act so doggedly is actually fueling the flames of Islamophobia in Canada. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So uh, the reason for the column was that there was a report about hate crime in Canada. Good news. You know, it's going down for most groups, uh, especially religious groups. But the one group where there's been a spike in hate crimes targeting uh, a religious community is Muslims in Canada. You have to wonder why that might be happening, and it's been happening for the last two or three years. And clearly that's coincided with the rise of ISIS in the Middle East. But also there's, there's a real ratcheting up of the kind of rhetoric that we hear here in Canada. You know, things like barbaric cultural practices or the, the debate over the niqab, the, the face covering. Um, so what I was trying to say in the column is that, you know, this isn't happening in a vacuum, and the government, by constantly, you know, pressing these buttons about terrorism and different cultural practices, it adds to an environment where people feel more comfortable being bigoted toward Muslims in Canada. When you when you hear, for example, the Minister of Immigration, Chris Alexander, which you alluded to in your article, and um, he's referencing, uh, you know, terrorism when people are taking the citizenship oath while wearing a kneecap, what's the reason for all this? Like, why why push this kind of rhetoric? I mean, it is a good question. You know, the Conservative Party has actually been pretty good about reaching out to all sorts of ethnic, uh, diverse backgrounds. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I come from a community which is uh, very heavily religious. There's a lot of churchgoers in the neighborhood where I live. And you will actually see conservative uh, representatives come out and speak to people in the church, possibly even recruit sometimes uh, from people inside the community because they are very heavy about that local outreach. At least for the black communities, I've seen quite a bit of outreach from the Conservative Caucus. It's been great. But in the last couple of years, it seems they've decided there's one group that we can kind of single out as a, as a bit of a scapegoat. And that happens to be Canadian Muslims. I don't mean to sound incredibly cynical here, but I think that has a lot to do with the fact of who votes for the conservatives and who doesn't. So I think, you know, we don't really do exit polling in this country, but I, I would bet Andre's sweet, cute little hat there <laughs> that um, if we dug into the data, we would see, in fact, that other South Asian communities such as Hindus or, or Sikhs or, you know, you were just talking about religious black communities, they would tend to vote conservative. But I, I really don't think Muslims are. And I think in driving the sort of wedge issue, as terrible as it is for 
for the kind of political conjecture it sort of amps up. It ends up being quite smart. I hate to use that word here because it's something that works out to their advantage anyway. All you have to do is tweet about defending somebody's right to wear a niqab and you see people come out of the woodwork saying how quote, these people don't care about, quote, our values. It was a Sikh MP that brought legislation back to the table to uh, to bend the niqab. Do you think that that plays into trying to pit one group against another? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I think the fact that they had Minister Uppel do this wasn't an accident. I think they needed to put out their one token brown guy that wears a turban to be like, look, look, it's not racist because he wears a turban. Uh, well, not so, considering the fact if you're talking about, first of all, let's talk about this niqab ban. It's completely ridiculous to begin with because uh, your identity is confirmed beforehand. Uh, if, if you're talking about not being able to see the oath being said publicly, you have the option to do it in private. This legislation obviously isn't going to get passed. It was is just a political play, and I think it's sadly working uh, to their advantage. What do you see as the long-term impact of this? The long-term impact is, it's horrible, because what it does, to, to my mind, there's two groups of people that really pay attention to this constant stream of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment coming from the government. One is Canadian Muslims who feel targeted, and they increasingly feel unsafe, or they feel like they're being watched by the police. And the other group is um, those bigots who think that Muslims are a fifth column, they're a threat, they don't fit in. The two groups that that see these policies and these statements, they care, so it'll matter to the conservative base in some parts, and it'll really matter to Canadian Muslims. But I think most Canadian voters will, they might take note, but they'll move on. It won't be an essential issue to them. And I think that's how they get away with it, because if they were really obvious about it, I think most Canadians would stand up and say, whoa, 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 we gotta, like, cool it. But because it's these sort of drips and drabs a statement here, a speech there, and, you know, a legislation calling some practices culturally barbaric. I think they managed to fly under the radar, but the overall, the long-term impact is going to be that more and more people are going to view their Canadian co-citizens with deep suspicion, and that's not good for anybody. Okay, just a final question on this one. Do you think that there's any merit to introducing this bill? Like, I don't want to come out and then just have a conversation about why this bill is awful and why the conservatives might be borderline racist. There's got to be at least some rationale for introducing a bill like this to fill a gap in policy that we're not addressing. I think these are interesting and definitely important things to talk about. So as far as there's a conversation about gender-based violence, I think there's potentially some benefit there. It's not like we're being consistent about this. Uh, Murdered and missing Indigenous women you know, that is the textbook definition of gender-based violence. We seem not to be terribly worried about uh, combating that. So, I mean, as far as uh, getting people talking about it and reiterating that female genital mutilation is very, very bad, you know, maybe there's some benefit there. But um, it, I think... I'm just uh, very skeptical of whether that's actually the motive. Yeah, you're really reaching on this one. The jig is up. <laughs> the jig is airborne. Uh, next up, I just want to talk about the uh, the new secular legislation in Quebec. I can't even believe we're coming back to this, but there's new secular legislation in Quebec which bans the niqab in the public service. Yep, um, and that's been introduced by the Quebec Liberals. So it's it's essentially what a lot of people are calling a watered-down version of the uh, Quebec Charter of Values that the Parti Québécois had introduced and what actually you know ended up triggering their more or less their, their demise um, in the last Quebec provincial election. And Supriya, we've had some pretty interesting back and forths on Twitter, partially because I just happen to think that when we do things that are just blatantly racist in English-speaking Canada, when we pass laws that there's just, there's no reason to pass them or there's no reason to try, at least try and pass them, 
other than we want to target this particular group. In English-speaking Canada, we get to have a conversation about that and why it's bad to target those certain groups. But I almost feel like in Quebec, they get away with a lot of racism because we have to understand Quebec's unique culture and the way that they interact with uh, with quote-unquote ethnic minorities or perhaps people of color that you just wouldn't understand if you're an English-speaking Canadian. So can you walk me through this? I'm going to take issue right off the bat with something you said. I, I don't actually think that in the rest of English-speaking Canada, we're so great at, at introspection and talking I'm about racist I'm not saying that bills. we're great at introspection. I mean, we, I'm we, just... we just spent the, the, first to- the first part of the show talking about the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act, and they're only targeting one specific community. And okay, the, let, one let me, thing I will say about the Quebec Charter, yeah. at least they were equally prejudiced against every religion that was out there to a degree. Right, let me clarify something because I feel like we're about to get into it just now. But I feel like in English-speaking Canada, we get to have these conversations. Now, granted, we don't have the conversations very well, but I feel like when we bring the issue to Quebec, there's this, like, this wall that's thrown up and people say, well, you can't talk about this honestly because you're not from Quebec, you don't speak French, so therefore you don't understand us and you should try to understand the history first before you can get into those conversations and then they just continue doing racist stuff anyway. Here's the thing. There was a minority government, Parti Québécois, headed by Pauline Marois. She introduced, through her lieutenant, Bernard Drainville, a very stupid bill, the Quebec Charter of Values. It was defeated, and the liberals then propelled to a majority government because of it. So to say that Quebecers are more racist when we, in fact, voted out a technically racist government— I didn't government, say you're more racist. I, I, I think—no, I'm not saying you. I'm okay. saying I'm saying rest of, rest of Canada. This is, this is something that gets thrown around a lot. I just find that Quebec gets the shittier end of the stick a lot of the time when, when, when well, we're— Yeah, but in English-speaking so Canada, you don't have people performing in blackface and then defending it like, oh, this is just our culture. I don't know what you guys are thinking blackface is, but to us— I'll never defend blackface. I've even written columns to the exact opposite effect, calling out a lot of the homogeneous white Quebec commentariat, if you will, for saying that it was okay. What I find is interesting is that the primary mode, I guess, for for Quebec identity politics is based not on race, not on religion, but language. Everything has a linguistic undertone to it to a degree, and I think that's lost in the rest of Canada, and that's something that they don't necessarily realize. So, for example, our quote-unquote beef, Andre, started out when talking about Jacques Parizeau for his very infamous comment, uh, money and the ethnic vote, and that's why they lost the referendum, you know, kind of scapegoating uh, the immigrant community Jacques Parizeau is who, just uh, just to make sure that our listeners can catch up on this? Former premier of Quebec who, who died recently, I guess two, three weeks ago now at this point. And so people were talking about his legacy, and I just don't think his legacy, a man who basically brought in a lot of great reforms with respect to uh, pensions, with respect to having uh, giving women a right to be able to pursue deadbeat dads and, and, and get actual payment from them. He did a lot of really good things. And I think simplifying that to money in the ethnic vote isn't necessarily fair characterization because it was, yes, a very racist, terrible thing to have said. And it was a tipping point, I think, for this country in terms of what we wanted to tolerate from our politicians and what they wanted to say. I just don't think that's the only thing he should be remembered for. It's not to say that his legacy should just be boiled down to that comment, but we do have to talk about he actually said that and a lot of people felt alienated. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, my family was was living in, in Granby, Quebec, which is about an hour east of Montreal. There are no Indian folk there. Let me just tell you, OK, it is something that needs to be talked about. And it's but, you know, Jacques Parizeau also was very vociferous in his opposition to the Quebec Charter of Values and was kind of leading the old guard mentality to say, hey, guys, this current party under Pauline Marois and Bernard Drainville, they're taking this way too far. And uh, we need to step it back a little bit, you know. And, and I think that convinced a lot of regular everyday Quebecers when they heard Jacques Parizeau speak with authority to say, holy crap, yeah, maybe this bill is really fucking racist. 
Ishmael, can I ask you, just to make sure that we're pulling this back a bit and we're, we're sticking to the topic, can you tell us a little bit about that secular legislation? Sure. So it scaled back from the charter from 2013, obviously, because that thing was nuts. But it seems like the new secular legislation will ban the niqab from the public service, both if you're if you work in the public service and if you're receiving government services. If you're receiving government services? That's my understanding, yeah. So hang on. So like if you're receiving, for example, employment insurance, you're not allowed to... Like, uh, explain this one to me, please. You, you know, you go into the office. If you need whatever government service, uh, you they need to see your face. You can't be wearing the niqab. It seems like such a specific tiny thing that must happen extremely rarely, but I guess it's worthy of a law. Yeah, it was interesting, though, is that the liberals were very clear that they were going to do this throughout the election. So I find it, and this is another one of those disconnects about English-speaking Canada versus the rest of Quebec, is that Quebec was like, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to expect this, because all throughout the debates, Couillard was like, we're going to introduce our own watered-down version of this charter, and uh, it, it, it is what it is. Whereas people tend to think that anything racist is only perpetrated by sovereigntists or separatists in Quebec, and that's just simply not true. Okay, so it's, it's really interesting you took it in that direction direction because I, I find this really weird thing where like we talk about how um, far the NDP has come as far as like capturing the imaginations of Canadians who do share progressive values and who do embrace multiculturalism. But for some reason, like when an NDP rep speaks to Quebec television, it's like his his vision for what the party stands for is completely warped because they have to pander to Quebecer values. And there's a there's a clip of an NDP MP. His name is Alexandre Boularis. Hope I got that correct. And he told a uh, French television program, he was on the uh, the station TVA, and he said, of course, our party is against the NICAP. Can we pull that up? ...service public, puis des gens compétents, puis qu'on soit capable de voir leur visage, Ça crée une frontière, ça crée de l'isolement. C'est pas une pratique qu'on aime le niqab. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I would never vote NDP because they have a different message in Quebec than they do for the rest of Canada. And in this clip, he's essentially affirming the fact that the NDP is against the niqab in the public service, and that's something that I don't think Tom Mulcair would want to radiate to his, uh, you know, to his peeps out in Ontario or anywhere else in the rest of Canada. So Ishmael, can you can you explain to me like why when MPs or potential MPs uh, candidates are speaking in Quebec, they're speaking with one message, which is sort of getting at this like assimilationist point of view and and treating I mean to my imagination treating Quebecers with kid gloves that this sort of mindset this is okay for them to expect other cultures to drop what makes them unique and just fit right in with what Quebec stands for well I mean maybe this sort of splits the baby between your your guys' positions it seems to me like because there's always a conversation in Quebec about identity you know even if it's usually linguistic I, th I think uh, once the conversation is always about identity and culture and, and values, this sort of stuff seeps in pretty quickly. Whereas in the rest of Canada, I, I don't think we have the same sort of obsession with cultural identity and protecting it, and we don't uh, have that sense of being, like, besieged in English Canada. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I, I also think in the rest of Canada, we practice multiculturalism, whereas in Quebec, uh, we tend to practice interculturalism, wherein it's sort of more of that American way, where it's like you're, you're American first, you're Quebecois first, and then you're whatever else second. And I think that's why Quebecers put such an important primary position on on identity, um, whereas in the rest of Canada, you know, you can be anything and everything, and Canadianism can just sort of fit into whatever the identity is that you already hold. And I almost hate to have to do this again, but do you think that there's any virtue? Like, is there any value 
to passing a law like this? Is there is there something that we should take away from this and say, well, maybe they do have a point? The secularism bill yes. they're trying to pass? Um, no, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessary. If for no other reason, the fact that like it's such a such a small, it's not a problem. Like if this was an actual problem that like the public service was being flooded with niqab wearing women uh, where they couldn't establish any identity and the public service was just a mess and we were losing all this like productivity hours, then sure, then maybe we can talk about that. But when you're talking about such a small segment of the population already, who, by the way, probably feels a little bit uh, alienated by their government as is. I don't think further alienating them is the answer. And I think this is just what that bill sort of does. Uh, the next topic that I want to get into, it you might think that it has nothing really to do with Canada, but it, it actually does to my imagination anyway. I think it speaks to a larger issue of the way that um, a white-dominated media and society essentially treats its people of color. But, you know, we, we're all aware of the news. We, we all know what happened in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And what really bothers me is the way that politicians in the United States and to a great extent the news media is addressing this shooting as though it's just some tragedy that popped up out of nowhere. But can we hear a couple of clips? This is the MO of, of this administration. Anytime there is an accident like this, do you believe the shooting was racially motivated? He said it was a horrific act. And, you know, I don't know what the background of it is, but it was, a, it was an act of, of hatred. Not racially motivated? I don't know. It looks like to me it was. But uh, we'll find out all the information. Would you label him as a terrorist? No. Uh, I mean, I... I, I I mean, so I think what's the difference, terror goes I guess. to the larger notion of a political agenda. I mean, I don't know what the difference is. I know what he was. He's a bad guy, and he was a crazy guy, and he's put himself in deep trouble that I don't think he's ever going to climb out of now. He was misguided. Okay, so I, I find it really interesting that the very same people who are experts where it comes to every other issue— but where it comes to the issue of race, all of a sudden, nobody has any idea. The killer leaves a long-winded manifesto. And even before we found out about the manifesto, he said very openly to his friends and family for months how much. Like, he would make racist jokes. He would talk about how much he hates black people. There are pictures of him on his Facebook wall where he's, he's, he's dressed in a jacket. And on the jacket, there's a patch of two flags. One of the flags is the uh, the flag of apartheid-era South Africa, and the other flag is the flag of uh, Rhodesia under white rule. This dude was a known racist. His motivations were very clear. He walked into that church. He sat down with people for an hour. They welcomed him into the church. He prayed with them. And then he got up and shot and killed nine of those people. It was very clear what motivated this man to kill all of those people. And yet, when confronted with those facts, politicians will say, well, I have no idea what was in his mind. I don't know what motivated this. Like, help me make some sense of this. Well, I was struck by politicians suddenly jumping to the mental health uh, talking points. But like you said, he had such a long public history of being a racist. And I tried to imagine somebody of a, of a Middle Eastern background who who wore an ISIS flag on his jacket, who constantly talked about starting a war with Western civilization, who made jokes about, I don't know, beheading people, whatever you can think of that would be sort of analogous, everybody would have called it in. But because I guess there's just such a, an acceptable level of racism that Dylan Roof can get away with in a, in a society that is so unequal and so racist, that it just flew under the radar or, or it blended into the background. 
I mean, you know, we talk a, a lot. I mean, I say we. I, I know I meant you, you and, and Des, um, and I meant we as in me and Ishmael on Twitter every now and again um, about white privilege. Um, and I think this is one of those aspects where it's just really staring you right in the face. Uh, white privilege means that when you're a, a, a white guy who commits a terrorist act, all of a sudden people are trying to justify it in some way that doesn't boil down to well, he's a terrorist. Nobody's willing to really call him out. And when I say nobody, I mean nobody on, on the right um, in, in America, uh, at least from the GOP presidential standpoint. But this is really one of those times where everybody who has, you know, is in a position of privilege, especially, you know, racially, needs to look at this and go, oh, holy crap, this is really unequal treatment right now if he was, uh, like, like Ishmael said, uh, somebody of Middle Eastern descent or just like anybody brown, really, versus somebody who's white. I've just been so heartbroken this week because... It's, there's just, I think as Canadians, it's easy to just shake our heads and say, you know, there they go again, you know, why can't they get their house in order? But, as, and that's, that's a terrible response that I think we have too, too glibly. But I think it's also partly just born out of the fact that we, we don't know what to do. You know, how do we, how do we combat this, especially in the States? And then, but also tut-tutting at them lets us ignore our own problems a little too. So it's just such a... It's such a difficult week, and then just, there's just such a willingness not to deal with the actual root causes. It has been a really difficult week, and what bothers me the most about this is when, when the Charlie Hebdo shootings happened in France, the political response was immediate and overwhelming, and you had leaders from all over the world convening to show how much they supported this magazine and they condemned this kind of terrorism. The silence in our political class has been absolutely deafening. I haven't heard any Canadian politician express anything about this whatsoever. You might wonder why in a, a podcast where we're addressing political issues, why I'm sidetracking over to this, but I think it's really important to address in our politics because what people say is just as important as what they don't say. I'm just not hearing anyone say anything anything on this issue. And that tells me that my life, my body, doesn't mean anything to any Canadian politician because unless it happens up here in Canada, we're just not willing to talk about it. I think there's also a certain sense of fatigue, which partly you can understand because it is so relentless and it's so emotionally draining, but it's also, you know, who gets to feel fatigued? It's the people who aren't directly affected by this kind of violence. So we can just kind of shake our heads and move on because, oh, it happens all the time. But that isn't the same privilege that you would have as, as, a, as a black person who is the victim of this kind of terrorist attack. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that you talk about who it is that gets to feel fatigued. As a, as a black person, as a person of color myself, and I actually spent quite a few years living in the U.S. South. And I've, uh, I've visited Charleston when I was much younger, um, back in my teenage years. And I remember having this distinct feeling of... I'm not sure whether you want to call it dread. I, I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, but I visited the old slave mart and the uh, the historic slave house where they auctioned human beings off like they were furniture. And not that far away is the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Do you think there's a refusal to look at what historical impact that acts of racism have on people of color and how that ingrains itself in our society and our culture? Sure. And I think that's probably the most, in a Canadian context anyway, the best example of that is when we look at um, our Indigenous communities. I, and I think every sort of reaction that comes out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or a, a anything that's, that's analogous to that ends up being something along the lines of, okay, well, that happened in the past, get over it. And I don't think there's an actual appreciation for 
the lasting effect that something like that has and the continual marginalization of these certain communities. I don't want to get too hopey changey with you guys, but what do you think we could do going forward that would stop this happening again? Just the the, the, the patronizing sort of amnesiatic response that we have um, whenever these, these acts are committed. So now I'm, are you asking me to solve Canada? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do that. One thing would be to get a diversified media, get a diversified political class, get a diversified fucking judiciary. It, we're 2015 and our Supreme Court is all white people. That is like, I, I can't, it, it blows my mind. Um, but I think, a, you know, a shorter term solution for that is to vote out the idiots who have this kind of rhetoric. If you don't know who your local MP is or who's who's running in your, in your riding, Google it, figure it out, you know, educate yourselves and and become just as mad as, as we are right now. There's, there's a way to change this, and it's, and it's voting the people out that you don't want in office. I think it's also about, you know, this term gets thrown around a lot, but allyship. So a community doesn't feel isolated, but also, even in our conversation here, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I'm just kind of thinking, like, are we just, you know, the angry minorities? And I think that's a feeling that we should try to fight against so people don't feel like they're alone in a fight. I think it's really important to to build coalitions to, to change some of the stuff. Absolutely. You know what? Before we go too much further with this, we, we may as well wrap this up. I'm not going to get any less angry. And I think Canadian politicians and Canadian media do have to do a whole lot better job with uh, with issues relating to people of color. Um, guys, any last words? I like your hat. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've really worked ourselves up into a lather here. But, uh, you know, it's worth getting angry about. And uh, until stuff changes, we, I think we have to stay angry. Thanks a lot, you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, that's this week's episode. If you want to search for us on Twitter, you can just go into the search box and type in Canada Land Comments. It will be the very first search results you find. Shout out this week to our producer, Imogen Burchard. Music credit goes to Nathan Burley. If you want to find the Canada Land website, we're at canadalandshow.com. You can also email me at andre at canadalandshow.com. Andre is spelled A-N-D-R-A-Y. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts. If you like the show, please chip in. You can go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand to support us. And if you like what you hear, please show us some love. Wherever you get your uh, podcasts, iTunes, or Stitcher, give us that nice five-star rating. And tweet about the show. Desmond Cole is going to be back next week, to my great chagrin because I really like Supriya. Hey, I love it all the love here. Um, but Desmond will, in fact, be back. This wasn't a coup. The next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is on Thursday, and Canada Land Commons will be back next Tuesday. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.